There's a video circulating online where the artist Ben Folds composes a song on the fly with the National Symphony Orchestra. Have any of you seen this? Oh, it's amazing. Go online and check it out. Uh, the audience even gets to participate. And so they ask, uh, what key do you want the song to be? Someone shouts out A minor. And so Ben Folds says, okay, well, what sort of song do you want? Someone shouts, upbeat. Okay, upbeat, A minor. But I need a lyric. You know, I'm a lyricist. Give me a lyric out of the program. And so if someone suggests... These new spaces are all designed to be flexible. Great lyrical content. And then, though, in less than 10 minutes, Ben Folds composes a song with the entire orchestra. Section by section, brass, this is what you'll play. You know, strings, this is what you'll play. Trombone, you get a solo. Like, and, you're, and you're hearing the parts, and you're like, I don't see how this is all going to fit together. And then they play the song. And you see the genius of this individual. In 10 minutes, he crafts this phenomenal song with the lyrics. You know, these spaces are all designed to be flexible. And you're like, wow, they really are. Uh, and so Ben Folds, he knows how to take parts and make them into a whole. And if you remember, the letter begins with these words. In many times and in many parts, God has spoken to our fathers by the prophets. You know, over thousands of years, God has spoken to his people in parts, but now God has spoken ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ. And together, the pieces of how God has spoken make a whole, and we can see how God has been masterfully composing a song. And in our passage today, the author of Hebrews will do, begins to do what he's going to do throughout the entire letter. He brings the whole story of Israel into conversation with Jesus. He pulls pieces of the Old Testament and brings them into conversation about who Jesus is. And he just focuses on a few pieces at a time. But in the case of Jesus, the whole is always greater than the sum of its parts. And the author today, he begins showing us that Jesus truly is Better. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Joshua. Jesus is better than Melchizedek, whoever that is. Jesus is better than the priesthood. He's better than the sacrifices. You name it, Jesus is better. And he begins today with angels. But this is not the world many of us live in, is it? You know, scriptures and angels and kings, you know, great reverence to power and authority, structures. You know, this passage seems very otherworldly to us. It feels bizarre, even odd. It doesn't seem like it's describing our everyday life. But that is the issue at hand for the people receiving the letter too. Does Jesus really make sense of where we are and what we face? And so here's the question I want to ask this morning. Why do we need to know that Jesus is greater than angels? Why do we need to know that Jesus is greater than angels? So if you have a Bible, open it up to Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. If you uh, don't own a Bible, you can take that gray Bible home with you. It's a gift from us to you. Uh, and everything's going to be on the screen as well. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. Jesus became much superior to angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all of God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Jump ahead to verse 13 and 14 with me. To which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? 
I suspect some of you here today, the moment you hear angels, you're immediately hesitant. You know, you're still trying to decide if there's a God or not. And if there is a God, could Jesus possibly be God? To throw angels on top of it is a little much. And I just say, bear with us. Stick with us for a moment here. Most of us, whether we believe in angels or not, we have a Hallmark card theology of angels. You know, they're cute and they're cuddly and they're childlike creatures with wings. You know, cherubim with big pudgy cheeks that you want to you wanna pinch. And they come with great catchphrases like, I'm praying for you. Now, I want to advise you never to buy this card for anyone in any circumstance whatsoever. Not because it's trite and offensive, but because that's not what angels look like. You know, throughout the scriptures, whenever someone encounters an angel, their face looks more like this. You know, it's complete fear and terror. There's trauma. You know, whenever the angels show up in scripture, the first thing they say to people is, don't fear, little humans, don't fear. Like, don't die on us. We know we're scary. But why? Why? Why are angels so scary? Ezekiel describes angels in his book. They had a human likeness, but, an important but, each had four faces and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the soles of a calf's foot and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Interesting fact, the lady who wrote uh, Twilight series, that's where she got her inspiration for the vampires sparkling. No, no joke. Uh, anyways, uh, under their wings on their four sides, they had human hands. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side and the four had the face of an eagle. I would like to see that in a Hallmark card, you know? Merry Christmas. This is the Stearns Christmas card for this year. Because the author wants to highlight Jesus over and above the angels, he doesn't actually tell us much about angels. Angels are just described as creative beings, you know? They, they're in God's heavenly presence, worshiping around the throne. At his command, angels can take on different shapes and forms. God can change them into winds or a flame of fire. They can look like a person or what Ezekiel saw. And they're sent out by God to assist those who are gonna inherit salvation. That's why angels are all over the place in the birth narrative of Jesus. Talking to Elizabeth, talking to uh, Zechariah, talking to Mary, you know, preparing shepherds to go find the baby Jesus at six pounds, nine ounces. You know, this is why angels are there. They're serving those who are going to inherit salvation. Now, before God spoke in his definitive way through the Son, the other time that he spoke that was the most defining for his people was at Mount Sinai. And there, after God had delivered Israel out of Egypt, after he had saved them from slavery, he brought them out to the wilderness in Mount Sinai. And if you talk to any ancient Jew, he said, when is the most definitive time God's spoken to your people? They'd say, there, at Mount Sinai. Because there, God made a covenant. He made a deal with his people. He said, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. But with that came some context for how to be in relationship together. And God gave the law at Mount Sinai. The law primarily being the Ten Commandments. Now jump forward a couple thousand years. By the time we get to the first century of Judaism, it was believed that angels were also present at Mount Sinai. It's all over intertestamental writings. And they were there mediating God's holy and powerful presence to Moses and to the people. Don't miss the implication here. What they believed was that at their most defining moment of God speaking to them as a people, his presence still needed to be mediated. They still couldn't enter directly into it. The angels acted as a buffer. 
Now, stepping back into Hebrews. In terms of spiritual beings, there is no one greater the author can compare Jesus to. These guys, the angels, they're at the top of the spiritual ladder. And everything we learn about Jesus in these verses is supported by the phrase which appears twice, for to which of the angels did God ever say? In other words, God has said things to angels that he has said to nobody else, only to the Son. And to show us this, the author of Hebrews takes us on an exploration of Scripture. And while it may not appear this way at first, the passages he selects, they are not random but intentionally chosen. For example, if you discovered a playlist with uh, Katy Perry, Roar, Taylor Swift, Shake It Off, and, and Sia, uh, Chandler, Chandelier, Candelier, Chandelier, I can't speak, Chandler is in my mind for some reason. Well, but what would you conclude if you saw this playlist? Well, this is Alistair's workout playlist. And clearly you can tell Alistair works out all the time. Uh, but if you discovered another playlist with Nine Inch Nails, Hurt, R.E.M., Everybody Hurts, Joy Division's Love Will Tear Us Apart, uh, what would you conclude? Better see if Alistair's okay. He's in his sad place. Now, if you don't know any of these songs, first off, you should look up Joy Division because they're sweet and I realize I'm probably too old for most of you to, to know that band, but Love Will Tear Us Apart, great song. But if you don't know these songs, if you don't know these songs, you can't hear what they mean together. You might know the individual songs, but you don't understand what they mean when they're put together. In the same way, the author of Hebrews is taking pieces and making a whole. And we're not as familiar with Scripture as he is, are we? And we might not even be as familiar with Scripture as the people receiving this letter. And so it takes a bit of effort for us to see how the pieces make a whole, but I assure you, as we put the effort into it, it pays off. Here's the first thing he says about Jesus, verse 5. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So right here, the author quotes Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7. And he's talking about a relationship between God and Jesus as a father and a son. And while we might be tempted to focus on how beautiful that is and, and the love between a father and a son, that's not what ancient Jews would have heard in these references. These are passages about a king that is to come. These are passages that promise the Messiah will come. And these are passages that remind Israel that God has promised them that when this everlasting king comes, he's going to establish an everlasting kingdom. That this king, the Messiah, would vanquish all of Israel's enemies, all of God's enemies, and that the Messiah would rule over the entire world and all of the nations with peace and righteousness and goodness. And what the author of Hebrews is saying to the people reading this, now, now this king has come. This king has arrived. But he's no ordinary king. He's the Messiah. But he even defies expectations of the Messiah because he's the son of God. Or as the gospels put it, he is God's beloved son. But the moment we speak of Jesus as a son, it's easy to misunderstand and come to the conclusion that Jesus had a beginning. That like the angels, he was created at some point of time. And the author doesn't leave us any room for this line of thought. He continues in verse 8 through 12. But of the Son, God says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. 
Like a garment, they'll be changed. But you are the same and your years have no end. This is an incredibly edgy move on the author's part. Here, he lifts verses from Psalm 45 and Psalm 102, 102 that are explicitly and undeniably about God and he applies them to Jesus. This is blasphemy unless Jesus is in fact God. And so what the author is doing here, he's only restating what he said in his introduction. Do you remember? That through Jesus, all things were made. Jesus is uncreated. He has no beginning and no end. At the end of the letter, the author says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today. He's the same forever. And this can only be true if Jesus is God. And we dealt with this at length last week. So if you missed that sermon, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. Now, consider the comparison here. Angels are created, but Jesus is eternal. Angels are God's servants, but Jesus is God's beloved son. He shares a more intimate relationship with God. And you could say, to a degree, he knows the Father better than the angels ever could. Angels stand in the presence of God, which is amazing, and they worship God, but Jesus is God's presence, and the angels worship him. You see, the pieces are starting to come together, and we can see the whole, but if we stop here, we'd be stopping short, because we'd only understand how Jesus is greater than the angels. We wouldn't understand why that's important. Because you see, the author doesn't want to just disseminate information to us that Jesus is greater than angels. He's trying to respond to a pastoral opportunity. This information is supposed to do something for our hearts. Which brings us to our main question. Why do we need to know that Jesus is greater than angels? Let me ask you another question first. What does the store Forever 21 the football player Tim Tebow, and the pro wrestler Stone Cold Steve Austin have in common. Anybody know? John 3.16. Thank you. Uh, Forever 21, placed at the bottom of every single bag. Tim Tebow would write it in his eye black, and uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin uh, changed it to Austin 3.16, which was very humble. And how many of you know this first? Just quick hands up. This isn't like a shame or anything. It's just Yeah, most of you. This is probably the most memorized verse in North America. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Ah, that's good news. If you really listen to it, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. I remember the first time I heard this when I became a Christian. It was probably a year after the fact. And, and it sunk down from my head to my heart. I really heard it. And I was jazz, like jazz hand jazz. And I went to my community group the next week. I said, have you guys read this? This is amazing. And they're like, yeah, that's John 3.16. No big deal. No big deal. Like, do you not understand what these words say? And after hearing it so many times that I, I can't even tell you, if I sit down and meditate on these verses, I have the same reaction still. Can the good news be this good and this simple? This is why people memorize the verse. This is why it's the popular verse of North America. The early church had their own favorite verses too. Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Jot it down. Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. These are your new memory verses. They're the most frequently quoted uh, Old Testament references in all of the New Testament. 
They're all over the place. They're the ancient equivalent of John 3.16 until John went ahead and wrote his gospel and changed everything. Both of these Psalms are quoted in our passage today. The author begins with Psalm 2, and then he ends his argument with Psalm 110. They're bookends. They're the bread of the sandwich. They frame everything he has to say. And here's what they say together. Psalm 2, you're my son, today I've begotten you. And Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Doesn't quite pack the same punch as John 3.16. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Why would the early church find these verses particularly comforting? Remember their context for a moment. The, the people receiving this letter, they're urban Christians facing marginalization because of their faith. They're losing property. They're losing jobs. Some have even lost their lives. They're suffering and they're wondering, is following Jesus really worth it? And they're wondering, where is the everlasting kingdom he was supposed to establish? And so by placing two of their favorite verses, Psalm 2 at the beginning and Psalm 110 at the end, the author of Hebrews is reminding the church of their story. He says, only by remembering your story will you then be able to make sense of where you are and what you're facing. So they're to remember the past. Psalm 2. The king has come. This everlasting king has arrived. You've seen it firsthand. And he is going to establish that kingdom will last forever, but he hasn't done it yet, which means the best is yet to come. And if God followed through on his promise to send the king, you better believe he'll follow through on the everlasting kingdom. But then they're supposed to remember the future as well. Jesus, he's now at the right hand of God with everlasting peace. That, that, that's promised. He has the majesty and the power and the authority to change the entire universe, and he will. And when he returns, he'll make all of God's enemies a footstool for his feet. And those enemies include evil, they include suffering, they include death, and he'll even come and wipe away every single tear. Jesus promises a new creation. And you see, the church has to remember where they exist between the past and the future. They exist in the present, but these realities overlap. They've tasted and seen the goodness of Jesus. They've experienced salvation, but they also know that he's at the right hand of God and they're waiting for him to return. They've had glimpses of the kingdom, but they also live in a city that still is crying out for renewal. They know that there is more of the kingdom to come still. And when they understand this story, they can begin to find comfort. You see, the author of Hebrews, he puts Psalm 2 at the beginning and Psalm 110 at the end to remind them of the story, but then he offers the church comfort. So every psalm in between these psalms is him responding to the tension of living between these realities. Let's look, work through this together. Look at verses 10 through 12. There he quotes Psalm 102. What kind of psalm is that? It's a lament psalm. If we look at the entire psalm, it begins with the words, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. The author is inviting lament. He knows that our hearts need permission and even invitation to lament. 
You see, Christians aren't called to have a stiff upper lip about our struggles, despite what Anglicanism may say. When we know it, I got one Anglican laughing. Uh, There's miracles happening, people. When we know it in our bones, that things are not the way they're supposed to be, there's an opportunity, actually. We can lament, which means we name and we share what is painful, what is wrong, what is broken, and what's hurting in our lives and in the world. The theologian Sun Chan Ra writes, lament is honesty before God and each other. If something has been truly declared dead, there's no use in sugarcoating that reality. To hide from suffering and death would be an act of denial. If an individual would deny the reality of death during a funeral, friends would justifiably express concern over the mental health of that individual. In the same way, we should not be concerned, should we not be concerned over a church that lives in denial over the reality of death in our midst? You see, Psalm 102 reminds the church that as we live in this world, our hearts need lament. And if we don't lament, We will grow numb, we will grow complacent, or disheartened, or even discouraged and disenfranchised. And if that's your reality, if you're feeling numb and complacent or disheartened towards faith, it's likely because you haven't been lamenting. And if you don't even know where to begin, lament over the state of your soul. Lament over the fact that you are numb and complacent and disheartened. You see, lament means we don't sugarcoat our hurt or discomfort or confusion, our deep frustration with injustice or our desire for improvement or our wish for something better, something more lasting, something more perfect and peaceful. We don't hide these parts of our lives any more than we would hide the doubt that might be crippling some of our faith. And so maybe your health isn't improving and maybe each day is getting harder and harder. Or maybe your family is a mess and relationships are falling apart. Or maybe you're still lonely and you're struggling to find meaningful and lasting relationships. Maybe years and years of prayer are still going unanswered and faith feels beyond your strength. And maybe you're just one more tragedy away from throwing in the towel and you can't bear to read the news anymore. And whatever you're facing, maybe you're beginning to lose sight of the bigger story. Maybe your faith is beginning to fade into the background and you're wondering what difference faith makes at all. The antidote is lament. Naming and sharing these experiences. But it's not just naming them because that's just grumbling and complaining. And there's another word for it too that I can't say in church. It's naming and sharing Honestly with God. Honestly with God and with others. You see, whatever your lament is, you you have to give words to it. You can't keep it inside. You actually need to say it out loud in faith that God is listening. And say it out loud to a friend who's listening. But as Christians, we don't just lament. We lament with hope. We lament with hope. The author of Hebrews reminds us that God will roll up this creation and like a garment, it will be changed. 
You see, no matter how bleak or painful things are, this is not how things will always be. This world and suffering, frustration, the hurt, the tension, it's temporary. It will not last, but Jesus will, will, he will remain. And so don't miss me here. Real hope isn't denying or ignoring hurt and pain. Real hope isn't empty platitudes. But no matter how difficult life may become, even when we're hurting, we're promised Jesus will roll it all up. He'll change it like a garment. It'll be that simple for him. And so when we're hurting and when we name that pain and we name that experience, but we simultaneously hope in what Jesus will do, we will find comfort, unexplainable comfort in waiting for Jesus to do it. But our hearts, they need permission, an invitation to lament, to lament with hope. But our hearts also need something else. Our hearts need adoration. And in fact, when you lament well, it opens your heart up to adoration. Consider verses 8 and 9. The author quotes Psalm 45, and in the Psalter, what's it titled? A love song. You see, this whole psalm he quotes is a song of adoration and celebration over a king. And this isn't some heartless and ruthless king to begrudgingly submit to and obey. He's a completely good king. He seeks what is right and good and true. He rules with uprightness and justice and strength. But what the psalmist shows us is that you can't just have intellectual knowledge about this king. Your heart must know him too. You can't just say, oh yes, he's a very good king. Your heart needs to cry out, he's good. We're invited to adore this king. But how do we get there? I want you to think about a meaningful relationship in your life, a close friend, someone you can confide in, someone you trust unequivocally, someone you love. You didn't develop the depths of this relationship just by playing Pokemon Go together. You know, you, you didn't just stay on the surface. It's difficult to have a meaningful relationship with someone if they can't go to real places with you over time. If they avoid conflict, they're actually avoiding you. If they can't handle your tears, they're saying they only want parts of you. It'll be to the detriment of your relationship. A real relationship, one that actually means something, that will last, one that we can enjoy is one that can enjoy life with you, but also one that has developed the capacity to sit with you in pain, showing empathy and suffering and compassion when you need to weep. Your most treasured relationships are the ones with the people who know how to be present with you in the moments that matter most. We all know this, but it's not quite the right parallel to Jesus because yes, Jesus is our friend who sits with us, but he's also our king who sits at the right hand of God with unfathomable majesty, authority, and power. About a year ago, October 13, 2016, the long-standing king of Thailand died. And I tried to learn how to say his name. I'm just going to call him the king so I don't butcher it. But when the king passed away, the government declared a year-long mourning period. And it hasn't ended yet. It hasn't even been a year yet. They've been lamenting for a year. And for the first 30 days following his death, citizens were asked to refrain from participating in joyful events. Major sporting events were canceled. Some broadcast stations switched from color to monochrome. People wore black for the entire month. People were openly weeping. Some were unable to go to work. 
there was open public and national lament. Now, you might be skeptical of people's response, or you might think they were trying to take advantage of the situation. After all, they didn't personally know the king. And yet, international reporters who were present say it was largely sincere. One even wrote, I cannot imagine a greater outpouring of admiration and respect for any world leader or royalty than I've witnessed here in Thailand. The king of Thailand was far from perfect, but much of what he was doing was good. And the way he served and ruled over his people captured their hearts and adoration. They adored him, and that's why they lamented. And so if an imperfect and flawed king can capture the adoration of people, how much more the Son of God, the king who rules with complete goodness and, and, and righteousness? Do you hear the pieces coming together to make a whole? Do you see why Jesus is greater than angels? He's the king who is greater than angels, who's worshipped by angels, who sits at the right hand of God, but who also sits by your side. He's the king who promises everlasting joy, a world eradicated of all that is wrong and who has the power and authority to bring us there. And he sends his fearsome angels to support us and sustain us in salvation. And the same king is present in our hurt and lament. He's there in the moments that matter most. As we struggle here and now, he's found in our pain. He's found in our frustration. He's found in our doubts and in the tension of waiting for him to fix this world. And you can, you can taste his goodness even in lament because in due time, he will use his power to make all things right, to heal what's broken, to mend what's wrong. This is someone you can love. This is someone you can adore. And when you taste his goodness in lament, it might not fix everything, but you will adore him. You see, God doesn't just want your mind. He wants your heart. God has spoken through his son, not just so we can hear him, but so we can love him. And if, and if you hear him speak, if you invite him into your life, you will love him. But you have to open up your heart. You have to open up your heart before God and make space for lament and also make space for adoration. And it begins by saying, Jesus, I put my faith in you as the king of the universe. Please sit with me, a sinner who needs your grace.